Welcome to the FaithBridge Sermon Podcast. Be sure to keep watching immediately after the sermon for Postscript, a weekly podcast with in-depth content and answers to your questions submitted during the sermon. You can also find it on iTunes or at faithbridge.org slash postscript. God had always been part of my story, but um, kind of as my faith progressed and like as I grew older, I kind of took a step back from faith and just kind of started to question things a little bit more, especially like going into college. You know, I didn't go to church regularly. The only reason I went to college is so that I could get a degree, so that I could join the Peace Corps. And that was just always something I wanted to do. I really just had a heart for like going and working um, in Africa. I don't know when this was placed on my heart, but it always has been. And then when I graduated from college, um, applied for the Peace Corps, was accepted, um, going through the process of getting placed, and everything was gonna be great. All the puzzle pieces were coming together. But coinciding with that time, my dad started getting sick and it was ALS, or Lou Gehrig's disease. So I was just like completely devastated. My mom was still working, my dad was retired, and so I volunteered and I was like, I'm gonna move back home and just full time became the person who stayed home with him and um, helped take care of him and, and make sure that, you know, he was getting everything that he needed during the day. And it's really difficult to see somebody that you've looked up to for your whole life who's been so active and so involved, to see him just every day kind of wither away. Um, it was a major trial to my faith, which was kind of weak going into this whole situation. I would go to bed at the end of the night and I would sit in the corner. There was a space in between my bed and the wall of my bedroom. And I would sit in that space um, just on my knees, just crying out to God, like, stop, like, just stop. And if you're truly the God of the universe, heal him and put it all back together because it's falling apart and you're just watching it fall apart. It's really hard as a daughter to hear your dad say he's ready to go home because um, I didn't want that. <laughs> I wasn't okay with just letting him be healed in heaven. Like I wanted him to be here with us. I just remember being so angry and so frustrated and um, and just kind of felt like my faith was kind of shattered at that time. I just felt like a complete sense of betrayal by God. All of those cries for help and all of those cries for healing had kind of, it just seemed like they had fallen on deaf ears. If he truly loved my dad, why would he be allowing this to happen? So it just kind of spiraled into like this bigger and bigger question. I had to get out of Houston and I had to get away kind of from everything that was going on. And so I moved to Dallas. I was running from anybody or anything that would remind me of that time. I think I had walked as far away as I have ever walked in my entire life. It was a much more like intentional, purposeful step to just turn my back on God because I felt like he had turned his back on me. 
Well, good morning and welcome to Faith Bridge. My name is Adam McIntyre, and yes, there is a part two uh, to Kate's story. And yes, we will be watching it today later in the service. Don't worry. I'm not going to make you wait until next week and just leave you on a cliffhanger. Uh, Kate's story is powerful and it's important, and we will watch part two before the service ends. But for now, we're going to continue in our Abraham series. And so if you have a Bible, you can go ahead and turn to Genesis 15. That's where we'll be today. If you don't have a Bible, go ahead and raise your hand. Ushers are coming down the aisle now, and uh, they'll give you a Bible. And if you don't own a Bible, please keep that one. We love you. And that's our gift to you. So as we are turning to Genesis 15, I want to tell y'all a story about my first ever roller coaster experience. When I was around 10 years old, I was finally tall enough to ride the good rides at Astroworld, rest in peace. And everyone knows that the good rides are the rides with the big drops that go upside down, right? And so Prior to this point, we used to go to Astroworld all the time. Uh, we had like season passes and I was always so envious of my stepdad and my older brothers because they got to go ride all the good rides while I was stuck with mom in Looney Tunes Town, uh, which was super lame. But now I had hit a growth spurt. I was finally 54 inches tall and I was ready to ride the good rides. I even knew which ride was going to be my first ride, the Ultra Twister. Anybody remember that ride? Yeah, kind of? Okay, let me tell you about the Ultra Twister. <clears throat> The Ultra Twister, the first drop, is at a 90 degree angle and it drops you 92 feet into three inversions reaching a max speed of 71 kilometers per hour. Now, is this an extreme ride? No, not really, but it was a good one. And I was very excited to ride the Ultra Twister. So when we got to Astroworld that day, I grabbed Chuck and I grabbed my older brother Ryan and I dragged them to immediately jump in line at the Ultra Twister. Sorry, mom, you're gonna be all alone in Looney Tunes town this year. And so we get in line, and the line's already like pretty long at this point, so I have plenty of time to let the anticipation build. And as we're waiting, uh, I start noticing that the closer we get to the ride, the louder the screams became. And, and, and then I'm like, man, that drop is like way bigger than I remember it being. And so my giddiness begins to turn into nervousness. I start having all these questions like, is this thing even safe? Right, like, uh, like what happens if I fall out? Like I'm barely meeting the height requirement right now. Like, can I just slip out of the harness? And so I, I turn to Chuck, my stepdad, and I ask him like, Chuck, is this thing safe? And Chuck goes, Adam, don't worry. Yes, this thing is absolutely safe. You're gonna have so much fun. Now my older brother, Ryan, at this point picked up on my nervousness. And so he looks down at me, he goes, hey, you okay, bud? Yeah, I'm fine. And then I made the mistake of asking him this question. I said, Ryan, do you think anyone's ever fallen out of this thing? And he just he looks at me and goes, probably. And uh, <laughs> like <laughs> instantly I get lightheaded, my knees are buckling, right? And I'm, I'm really starting to doubt this whole thing. And so Chuck scolds Ryan and then he grabs me by the shoulders and he says, Adam, you're going to have so much fun. I promise it's safe. You just got to trust me. You got to believe me. You're going to have a good time. Now at this point, uh, we are very close to getting on the ride and I'm feeling like I'm gonna throw up. And then by the time it's our turn to get on the ride, I am on the verge of tears and it's taking everything I have to hold it together. And so let me quickly describe the boarding process for the Ultra Twister for those who have never ridden it. So when it's your turn to board the ride, you step onto a moving conveyor belt that you then walk on to get to your seat. This is because the ride itself never actually stops moving. So like they load and unload passengers while the cars are in like perpetual motion. They never ever stop, 
which for me was terrifying because as I'm getting in the seat and trying to buckle in, this thing is inching closer and closer to the start of the incline. And I'm starting to think to myself, like, wait, what if I'm not like, what if I'm not like fully harnessed in by the time it starts? Like, is this thing going to just take off without me being properly secured? And so I'm already feeling like I'm going to panic. And when it's our turn, we get on and it's two cars per row. And so my older brother, Ryan, gets in the row in front of us. And then Chuck allows me to get in first, and then Chuck gets in and sits next to me. And you strap in your lap belt first, and then you have these big shoulder bars that you pull down. You hear this clicking sound until it locks over your shoulders, right? And so I watch Ryan grab his shoulder bars, and he pulls them down. Click, 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 lock. Great. I watch my stepdad grab his shoulder bars, and he pulls them down. Click, 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 lock. Everything is going well. Now it's my turn. And I feel like my heart is about to burst out of my chest because I know that once I lock these shoulder bars into place, there's no turning back. Like I'm riding this thing. And so I muster up every ounce of courage that I have. And I take a big deep breath and I grab the shoulder bars and I pull down and kunk, nothing. They don't budge. And so I think, okay, well, maybe I need to pull down harder. So this time I grab it and I pull down harder using like my body weight this time. Like I pull down as hard as I can, kunk, nothing. They don't budge at all which leads me to start panicking a little bit, you know, and I'm like, Chuck, uh, my shoulder bars are stuck and uh, I'm going to die. And Chuck kind of laughs and he's like, Adam, relax. It's going to be fine. Here, let me help you. And he's already strapped in at this point. So he kind of reaches over awkwardly and he tries to grab them and he pulls down and nothing. They don't budge at all. About this time, a Astroworld employee shows up and he's, you know, 16 years old, making $7 an hour and he could care less whether I live or die. And... <laughs> He comes to check to make sure everyone's uh, secured, and he sees that my shoulder bars are still up. So he goes to pull them down, and clunk, nothing. They don't move. And so then he goes, and he pushes uh, a button on the side. Well, hang on. Keep in mind that the entire time this is happening, we are inching closer to the incline, right? Like, it hasn't stopped moving. I can see that we're running out of conveyor belt. So then he goes, and he pushes a button on the side of our car, which I guess was meant to, like, release the harness lock. Uh, and so he pushes the button and he goes to pull it down again and clunk, nothing. If anything, the shoulder bars moved higher away from me. And then he goes, huh, that's weird. <laughs> and it was at that point that fear just took complete control of my body. And I went into that like primal fight or flight mode, right? And I just start like all tears just let loose. I start screaming and I try to jump out of my seat, but I forgot I already buckled my lap belt. And so like I jump up and then I'm like shoved back down and like now I'm stuck in this death trap. And so I just start thrashing wildly in my seat and I'm screaming at the top of my lungs. I don't want to die. I don't want to die. God, please save me. And Chuck at this point doesn't think it's funny anymore. He's trying to calm me down. And Astroworld employees like, dude, hey, little dude, just push the button on your seat. Just push the button. You can go. Like, you're not stuck. Uh, and so finally, I push the button, and I get free, and I crawl over Chuck, and I sprint to the exit with tears streaming down my face, and I spend the rest of the day with my mom in Looney Tunes Town. <laughs> So I had, I had spent years uh, being excited about this ride, hearing about how much fun it was, building up my anticipation for this ride. But my excitement turned into anxiety when I realized that this ride is a lot bigger and, and scarier than I had imagined it to be. And then my anxiety turned into doubt when I started questioning all the things that could possibly go wrong. And then my doubt turned into terror when things did not go according to plan. And I think that for a lot of us, we kind of go on a similar journey 
with our faith. When we first become a Christian, when we first surrender our lives to Jesus, typically things are going well at that point. Typically it's an exciting time and our faith is life-giving, but then before we know it, things take a turn. And you know, things don't go according to plan. Maybe a tragic event happens. Maybe you have a spiritually dry season and whatever it is, suddenly you find yourself questioning, you find yourself doubting, and then you find yourself wanting to run away from your faith in fear or in sorrow or in pain. And this is a spiritual journey that I think Abram or Abraham went on. It's a spiritual journey I want us to look at today in Genesis 15. So we're going to start in Genesis 15. We're going to read verses 1 through 3, 1 through 3 and we're going to discover how Abram, Abraham deals with the ups and downs of faith. So Genesis 15, we'll start with reading verses 1 through 3. Here we go. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision, saying, Fear not, Abram, I am your shield, your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring. Uh, Behold, you give me no offspring, and a member of my house will be my heir. So, in this passage, Abram is having a very frank conversation with God. It has been 10 years since, since the events of Genesis 12. So it's been 10 years since God made his initial promise to Abram that he would have a child and that through his offspring, they would become a great nation and the whole world would be blessed by this nation. It's been 10 years since then. So for 10 years, Abram has been waiting on God to bless him and his wife, his wife Sarai with a child. And I would imagine that Abram and Sarai expected this to happen at any time. Because when God made that initial promise, Abram was 75 years old and Sarai was 65 years old. And so I imagine they're thinking like, surely God is not going to take his time with this promise, right? Like surely he's going to fulfill this promise quickly because it's not just the giving birth thing that they're worried about. Oh, it's a big deal. But any parent could tell you that the good stuff, the stuff that makes parenting so worthwhile is getting to raise your child, getting to watch them learn and grow and develop into their own unique person. And Abram and Sarai aren't just worried about the birth. They want to make sure they have time to raise their child. So every day they eagerly wait, hoping that today is the day that we find out that Sarai is pregnant. And the days of waiting turn into months of waiting, turned into years of waiting. And the anxiety grows with each year that passes. After five years, they are entering into record-breaking territory. Uh, fun fact, if you didn't know this, the oldest recorded birth outside of the Bible uh, that has been verified was a woman in India who gave birth at 70 years old, which is amazing. 70 years old. And Sarai, after five years of waiting, is now 70 years old at this point and still no baby. Six years pass, nothing. Seven years pass, no baby. Eight years, and I would imagine that their excitement has skipped right past anxiety and is now into frustration. Like, what is God doing? What is he waiting for? Nine years pass, nothing. Ten years pass, and now Abram's frustration has morphed into doubt and fear. He stops wondering when God is going to fulfill his promise, and he begins to wonder if God is going to fulfill his promise. 
right? And so after 10 long years of waiting, Abram, instead of harboring his doubt and his fear and his frustration, he decides to go and confront God in the passage that we just read, essentially saying, hey, God, what are you doing? Like, what are you waiting for? The words that he used were, what are you going to give me? Because you promised me an heir. And you know what? I don't have an heir. I have a leaser of Damascus. And don't get me wrong, he's a great guy, but he's not the child that you promised me. And I think that Abram confronting God uh, is an important element of the Christian faith that we don't talk about a lot, which is our doubt. Now, I know that not everyone uh, struggles with doubt, but I'd be willing to bet that a lot of people listening to this, I'd be willing to bet that most of the people listening to this have experienced doubt at some point. Either they've experienced doubt in the past or they're currently going through doubt or they will experience doubt in the future. Now, some of us might struggle with doubt only one or two times in our life, maybe, again, because of a tragic event or a spiritually dry season, something like that. But for others of us, our faith has this constant undercurrent of doubt. And when dealing with doubt, if you're not dealing with it well, it can become exhausting and lonely and terrifying. I am someone who struggles with doubt, and I wouldn't be surprised if it ends up being a lifelong struggle. Uh, I know a lot of people here, you've heard my story before, I've shared it multiple times, but when I was 20, that's when I made the decision to surrender my life to Jesus. But my conversion experience was anything uh, was, was nothing like the, the aha moment that I hear about in so many other testimonies. My conversion experience was that after being discipled for months and months and months, one day I woke up and I decided, I made the choice that I believe Jesus is who he says he is more than I don't. And when I made that choice, I was anything but certain. It, it was like a 51-49 split, right? Like 51% Jesus is the Messiah, 49%, uh, this is all made up, right? But... Um, is one of the things that, like, man, if this is true, like, if Jesus is God in the flesh, that is a truth that deserves my full attention, my full energy, my full everything. And so, still being absolutely full of doubt, I decided to put my trust in Jesus over and above my doubt, and I ended up transferring schools, I changed careers, I changed really my entire life trajectory in that moment. And the only thing I trusted was Christ crucified and his resurrection. Everything else was still a question mark. My faith was full of uncertainties, but I put my trust in the risen Jesus, and that was enough. That was the foundation of my faith. Now. I believe that since then, the Holy Spirit has built my faith considerably, right? But still, doubt is a pretty consistent part of my life. It's not every day. It's not even every week or every month. It kind of comes and goes in waves. And I will say that as my faith has grown, the doubt has become less frequent and it's become more manageable. But, and I'm going to be real honest right now, there are still times, even now, when my doubt hits me like a tidal wave, where my doubt just fills me with anxiety and it keeps me up at night where I can't sleep because I start thinking these awful questions like, what if none of this is real? Like, what if we made all of this up to just cope with the terror of death? Like, what if I've surrendered my whole life to a false hope? 
What if I'm preaching about a dream that will never come true? And those kind of questions, they bring me to tears and they make it so that it feels like I can't breathe, like I'm having a panic attack or like some kind of existential crisis. And I think Abram is in a place where his questions are keeping him up at night. I think Abram is in a place where his doubt is leading him to tears because he was given this incredible promise that he would have a child and that child would turn into a nation and that nation would bless the whole world. I mean, that's an impossible promise. But if anyone could fulfill that promise, it was God, or so Abram thought. But the days of waiting turned into months of waiting, turned into years of waiting. And with every year that passed, he began to question his faith. He began to doubt God. He began to ask these questions like, what if God does not keep his promise? Like, is he, is he listening? Does he care? Is he here? And I think that these are questions that a lot of us can relate to on some level, right? Because faith is a choice that we make every single day. It's not a one-time choice. Every day we have to wake up and choose to trust in the promises of God and then obediently follow him. And there are some days where it is just incredibly difficult to be faithful. There are some days where we just, we don't know, like, God, are you listening? Do you care about what's going on in my life? Like, God, I am on the brink of losing my job, and I don't know what to do if that happens. Are you going to provide? Like, God, I just got this terrifying diagnosis. Are you going to heal? Like, God, my child is away for the very first time, and I'm scared. Are you going to protect? And there are times in our lives where we're just not certain about the answers to those questions. And then we wonder, like, well, how does God respond to those questions, right? Like, does, does he get angry when we question him? Is he offended by our doubt? Well, let's keep reading in Genesis 15, um, and let's see how, how God responds to Abram's doubt. We'll pick up in verse 4. Here we go. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, look towards heaven and number the stars. If you are able to number them, if you're, if you're able to number them, then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. And Abraham believed the Lord and he counted it to him as righteousness. So what this passage illustrates and really what the entirety of scripture illustrates is that God is not afraid of our doubts. God is not offended by our questions. He doesn't get angry and strike down Abram with a lightning bolt saying, how dare you question me? Instead, he responds to Abram with gentleness by reminding him that yes, I have not forgotten about that promise. And yes, I am absolutely faithful to fulfill that promise. And then Abram decides in that moment to trust in God's promise over and above his doubt. And his faith his decision to believe God, his decision to trust in God's promise, it was counted to him as righteousness. Now, in that moment, did all of Abraham, Abram's questions and concerns magically disappear? I don't know. Maybe, maybe not. But that's not the point. The point is that Abram decided to trust in God over and above his doubts. 
instead of fleeing from his faith. And it was counted to him as righteousness. And then God was not done either. After reminding Abram of his promise, God takes everything a step further. Let's keep reading. Let's pick it up in verse 7. And then God said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. But he said, oh, Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? Now, what I'm going to do is I'm going to paraphrase verses 9 through 16 because there's a lot going on there and it's very confusing. Uh, And so I'm just going to tell you quickly what happens. Uh, And this is going to be an oversimplification. These are very important verses, uh, but here it goes. So the following verses explain a sacrificial ritual process that was used back then to establish a covenant. Uh, So you can kind of think of it as, you know, like when you make an agreement with someone and then you seal it by shaking hands. It's kind of like that with a lot more dead animals Uh, and a lot more serious. That's a a big oversimplification. There's a lot more going on there, but you get it. Uh, The sacrifice was used to establish a covenant. And then God foreshadows the Exodus event that's going to be happening hundreds and hundreds of years later. He foreshadows it and foreshadows his rescue of Israel from, uh, from Egypt. And so now let's pick it up in verses 17 through 21. When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. The smoking fire pot and the flaming torch, that represented God's presence uh, inside of this covenant. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying to your offspring, I give this land from the river of Egypt to the great river. Uh, the river Euphrates, the land of the, Kenites, the land of the Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Cadmonites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the, Rif- the Rifaim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, and the Jebusites. So here's what's happening in that big chunk of verses we just read. We see God responding to Abram's questions and his doubts by not only reminding him of his promise, but by solidifying that promise with a covenant that Abram and his offspring would be God's chosen people and they would inherit a vast and bountiful land. And this covenant was a covenant made without conditions, meaning that it was completely one-sided on God's part, meaning that there's nothing that Abram or his descendants or anyone else could do that would cause God to break that covenant promise. And we know this to be true because hundreds of years later, God rescues the Israelites from slavery in Egypt and he delivers them to the promised land this promised land, where they do eventually become a mighty nation. Our God is absolutely faithful. But even after all of that, even after God makes good on his covenant promise, the Israelites, they still, they continue to rebel against God over and over and over again. It's kind of what the whole Old Testament is about, right? They're constantly rebelling and sinning and worshiping other gods. But does God ever go back on his covenant promise? No. In fact, God extends this covenant promise beyond Abram's wildest imagination. God sent his own beloved son, Jesus, to rescue all of creation. Not just the Israelites, not just one part of creation. Jesus came here to rescue all of his creation. And Jesus lived being fully God and fully man. He was born into this world as an Israelite, literally a descendant of Abraham. So when God promised Abram, hey, one of your descendants, one of your offspring is going to bless the whole world. He wasn't exaggerating, right? Again, our God is absolutely faithful. And then Jesus lived a life of sinless perfection. He was obedient all the way to his death on the cross where he took on the weight of the sins of the whole world. 
And then three days later, God raised Jesus from the grave in victory and in power. Jesus walked out of his tomb having conquered sin, conquered Satan, and conquered death. And now by the power of Jesus' blood, we are given a new covenant promise that all who put their trust in Jesus will share in his victory, meaning we'll share in the victory over sin, over Satan, over death, and we're going to share in his resurrection, meaning that one day, we will awaken to a renewed, restored creation in which there is no more pain, no more suffering, no more sin, no more death. That is a covenant promise that he offers all of us right now, today, right here. And to have faith means that you put your trust in that covenant promise over and above your doubts and then obediently follow Jesus. That's what it means to have faith. Faith is not intellectual certainty. Certainty is a feeling and feelings come and go. They ebb and flow. Faith is trust and obedience, regardless of how you might be feeling in any particular moment. Now, I know that that's easier said than done, especially if you're, if you're struggling heavily with doubt. But I want to give us some advice uh, that's hopefully helpful for all of us. So the first thing I want to say is if you want to strengthen your faith, you need to honestly embrace your struggle. If you want to strengthen your faith, you need to honestly embrace your struggle. There's this tendency to try and suppress any questions that we have, to try to suppress our doubts when they first begin to pop up because questions are scary. Doubt is scary. It is terrifying when our convictions are challenged on top of the stigma that comes along with doubting, right? There are a lot of people... A lot of times you're afraid that people are going to think that you have this weak faith if they know that you have these doubts. But listen, a perfect faith is not a faith that is free of doubt. A perfect faith is first and foremost authentic. This is the faith that Jesus demonstrates in the Garden of Gethsemane, moments before his arrest, when we find him pleading with God to find any other way other than the cross. Right? Jesus, and this was not a show, what he was doing. He was full of anxiety. He was full of fear and doubt. He knew that what he was about to experience was not just the, like, the horrible physical suffering, but the weight of the full sins of the world. He knew it was going to be agony. And so he was full of doubt and fear and anxiety to the point where he's sweating blood. And so he goes to his father and he, he says to him, honestly, if there's anything else we can do, if there's any other way, please take this cup from me, please. Scripture says that Jesus prayed this prayer in agony. But regardless of how he was feeling in that moment, he still trusted in his father's plan, praying, not my will, but yours be done. And he was obedient all the way to the cross. Jesus trusted and he obeyed his father in spite of his fears, in spite of his doubts, which is why he's now considered the founder and the perfecter of our faith. But notice that Jesus didn't stay silent about what he was struggling with. He went to his father and he expressed those feelings honestly. And this is what God wants from all of us. God wants all of us to come to him and express what we're struggling with honestly. Too often, we suppress those things, we bury them down, and we perfect this wholesome Christian act in which we learn all the right answers, even if we don't trust in those answers, even if we don't actually believe them. And that creates in us a dishonest faith. 
That's not what God wants. God doesn't care if you give a wrong answer. God doesn't care if you say the wrong thing. God does care if you're not honest with him. God wants raw truth more than he wants pious platitudes. I believe that that is absolutely true. God wants us to come to him, express our feelings, and, and wrestle with him. That's why, uh, that's why he called his chosen people Israel. Israel literally means, that name means one who struggles with God. He wants us to wrestle with him. A strong faith is a faith that embraces doubt and that wrestles with God. The second thing is a strong faith is a faith that is built in community. You cannot build your faith alone. You just can't. You can't be the body of Christ on your own. Our faith was designed to be practiced and built in community with one another. I've heard so many stories of people who struggled with doubts, and the ones who eventually succumbed to their doubts are the ones who allowed their doubt to draw them out of their Christian community, and they never, ever returned. However, for the people who pressed into the Christian community, who expressed their fears and their doubts honestly with their community, they were surrounded and loved and supported, and they were able to hang on to their faith and even grow their faith in that process. I want us to now watch part two of Kate's story. I want you to pay close attention to her words on the importance of community. Let's go ahead and watch that now. I think there was so many times like wandering in my wilderness when God really did want to reach out and like just show himself to me and I didn't want to turn um, and, and look at the face of God and I didn't want to see him and I didn't want to experience that um, for my own anger and I had been unwilling to take that first step for eight years. I think I had spent so much time walking around with anger and frustration and hurt. Um, I could see it manifesting itself in my everyday life and so I knew that this was something I was going to have to get to the bottom of. My mom had always whispered in my ear, you know, about coming back to church or finding a good church home or, or doing all of those sorts of things. For some reason, when my mom whispered in my ear this time, it just rang true. It was scary coming back to church. It was scary to kind of reintroduce myself to God, you know, with all the faults and all the hate and all the anger and all the bitterness that I've carried towards you for eight years. Here I am. And I knew that so much of it had stemmed from my dad. To release all of those fears and disappointment is really difficult. So I started coming to Grief Share to kind of introduce this and give this over to God. Grief Share was a tool, yeah, to work, to work through that and or to at least start kind of that process. We were watching the video in the first session and they said, um, you can bury your feelings, but there's going to be a day of resurrection. And I had spent eight years burying all my feelings, burying all my emotions, burying all of those thoughts and everything, and my day of resurrection was happening. I felt like I was surrounded by people who knew and understood me, um, which hadn't really happened before. And when they still love you through all of that, when they still want to spend time with you, when they still want to invest in you and in your life, that is powerful. <laughs> like, that is really, really powerful. 
joining community is starting with going to starting point and then starting point rolled into that ended and we didn't want to stop being friends so we made a small group and then that small group turned into um, discipleship and then discipleship and small group and starting point kind of rolled into we need to get you on a serve team maybe you should try the road This had been such a dream for 14 years and here it was finally happening. And I wasn't sure if the expectation um, that I had was gonna match up with the reality of this trip. We made it to Zambia and that first night, I remember we pulled up at Project Samuel and we step off the bus and you hear kids singing. Seeing the kids walking into that building, being on Project Samuel and it's like, this was it, like this was it, this was worth the wait. And it was just kind of a full circle. God took that in something that I just didn't know when it was gonna come to fruition and turned it around and made it into something that everything that I had imagined and I was so worried about the reality not matching up with that, it didn't because it exceeded everything that I thought it was gonna be. Every night, like, we would go out and have worship time together as a team and look at the stars. We were ending the devotion, and then all of a sudden, like, the emotions just got, like, super intense. And I just spoke up, and I was like, guys, like, I just need prayers right now. Like, I thought I kind of had things figured out, like, relationships, like, with your dad and with God. Maybe I don't have that as figured out as I thought. And like the whole group came around and I'm sitting on the concrete and they're all standing over me, hands on shoulders, hands on head, and they just pray. And it just like felt so good to just know like all these people are surrounding you and they're praying for you and they care about you. And I had just never really had that happen before. I think it's just God working here in our lives. When you have people who love you in that way and support you in that way. And I think what I've come to realize now is that God was always there. Like there was not a moment in time when he wasn't sitting in that little space between my wall and my bed, like with me, listening, crying too. He didn't abandon me. He never stopped loving me. Um, he was always there. He never stopped caring about our family and kind of now relating to God through my earthly father. Somehow it just made sense. And it was like the puzzle pieces all kind of fit into place and like the whole story started to make sense. I have a good, good father. Like I know that. I know that I do. And um, I, don't, I have two good dads. I, I am very thankful for Kate's story, her willingness to share it. Uh, and I think it's important for so many reasons, but uh, especially for her emphasis on how community uh, was transformational and people came around and loved her and supported her and encouraged her. And so please, if you're, if you're struggling with anything, if you're struggling with fear, if you're struggling, if you have questions, uh, if you have doubts, please do not struggle alone. That's why we put such an emphasis on grow groups here at FaithBridge, you need to be surrounded by people who aren't going to judge you, but they're going to love you and they're going to support you. 
right? Even if, even if you're not struggling with any of those things, you need to be in Christian community. Absolutely. Your faith will not grow otherwise. And you need to be in a place where you can support others. And so if you are not currently in community, I want to highly encourage you to join a grow group. We have a grow group open house happening in the Center Court East Atrium immediately after the service in, in just a few minutes. I want to encourage you to go out there, meet some of the grow group leaders. Uh, they are eager to meet you, and they'll tell you about the grow group. They'll answer any questions that you might have, and they want to get you plugged in to their community. And I think it's so important. It's absolutely vital because, listen, faith is not easy. It's just not. And there are a lot of questions that don't have easy answers. There are some questions that don't have any answers at all, or at least answers that we can know. But I think if you are honest with God about your struggles, about your fears and doubts, I think if you learn to practice your faith in Christian community where you can be loved and supported by others, and then if you listen to the great cloud of witnesses in scripture and throughout church history, witnesses like Abraham, who tell story after story after story of God's faithfulness, I can tell you from experience that the burden of faith will lessen and that faith uh, will become life-giving for you. Our God is absolutely faithful and he loves all of us more than we could possibly imagine. So I want to encourage you to choose to trust in his promises today. Let's pray. Father, again, I'm just so thankful uh, for your love. I'm thankful for your faithfulness. I'm thankful that you are patient with us whenever we just don't know what's going on and we have these fears and these doubts and these questions. I'm thankful that you don't get angry with us about those things, but that you respond with gentleness and kindness and love. Father, I'm thankful that you always make good on your promises. Thankful especially for your son, Jesus, and his work here on earth, his work on the cross, his resurrection from the grave. I pray that anyone here that is struggling with doubts, struggling with questions, struggling with fear, I pray that right now that you just make your presence known to those people. Pray that your Holy Spirit is filling this room, encouraging us to trust in your promises, to, to place ourselves in Christian community, and to obediently follow you. Again, God, we're just thankful. We pray all this in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen. Welcome to Postscript. Here we hope to answer your questions and help you dig deeper into the messages and sermons at FaithBridge by talking with the teacher of the day. Hello and welcome to Postscript. I'm Kyle, young adult pastor here at FaithBridge, sitting here with Adam McIntyre, who just preached a sermon called Doubting Well in our Path to Purpose series. Uh, well, we have a couple questions in, and we'll just kind of jump right into those. Perfect. The first one says, does God make a covenant promise about specific things with us today, or is it reserved for spiritual people of significance? This would not include covenant, the covenant of marriage. Uh, a covenant promise would be where God promises something specifically to a person. Uh, yeah, it's a good question. Um, the answer is no, not in the way that they're talking about, in that Jesus made uh, the last and final covenant that we'll ever need. Right. And that covenant um, was established 
uh, in his blood. Um, we know that from his um, conversation in the upper room with disciples mm-hmm. um, and during that Passover meal um, and uh, where he gives them the bread and the cup. Mm-hmm. Um, and he says, he's, I'm establishing a new covenant in mm-hmm. my blood. Uh, and that's now the only covenant uh, that we'll ever need. And that's the only covenant that we um, are called to trust in. And so, no, there's, there's no need for any more covenants, I right. guess. So there'd be no point to make it. Yeah, more. everything was established and finalized That's right. in Jesus. Absolutely. Yeah. Yep. Cool. Well, our other question that we have is, uh, what does it mean that Abram counted it as righteous? Yeah, it's a good question. And so that's a question that um, Paul actually kind of gui- dives into in Romans 4. So I'm just going to read a couple of verses from that, and then I'll, I'll talk about it for a minute. But in Romans 4, starting in verse 2, he says, For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does Scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted to him as righteousness. So in this instance, you know, uh, Paul goes on to talk about how we are justified by faith, not by works. Um, and, uh, you know, or grace is a, is a free gift, right? Yeah. Um, his mercy, uh, his forgiveness, it's all a free gift. There's nothing that we can yeah. do to work to earn it. The only thing that we're asked to do is to trust in it. Mm-hmm. That's it. And then to, and then to obediently mm-hmm. follow him. Um, and so that's what um, he's getting at. And that's what happens with Abram in the instance in Genesis 15 is that all he does is just trust in God in that moment. Right. Um, he trusts in God's promise again over his doubts, over his questions, everything else. And God counted that to him as righteousness, meaning that in that moment, God considered him righteous. God considered him justified. Yeah. Um, and it was only his trust, his faith, that made him that way. Nothing that Abram could have done. Yeah. Um, and so another way to say it is we cannot work for our salvation. Yeah. God offers that to us freely. Uh, we are saved by grace through faith. That's that. how that works. I love that. That's from Genesis all the way to right. Revelation. There's the entire theme of Scripture is you can't earn it. That's right. Uh, that grace is freely given. Absolutely. You just must accept it. That's right. It's yeah. so good. Uh, well, Adam, thank you for a great sermon that I know was helpful to many, myself included. Good, I'm um, glad. And thank you for listening to Postscript. We'll see you back next Sunday as Pastor Ken continues our series on Path and Purpose. See you then. Thanks for joining us for Postscript. Help us keep the podcast interactive by submitting your questions during the morning services. Learn more at faithbridge.org postscript.